Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here on this Lord's Day, the Lord's Day that is Christmas Eve, that is the fourth week of Advent, which is a series in the time of the church, the church calendar going back generations, where we reflect on and remember the things that are the most true. A lot of life is simply remembering the things that are the most true, pushing back against the delusions that we often entertain. And in this month, we remember that we are those who are still waiting, waiting the second coming of Christ. And we are those who are rejoicing, rejoicing over what has already been given to us. So just a reminder, as the candles are lit over there, the first week of Advent focuses on hope. And it is this great reality that the coming of Jesus into the world means that we have a sturdy expectation of future justice, a future where things are put right, that what happens here and now is not the defining reality for all of eternity future. In Jesus, we have a hope that allows us to be honest about the world, the things that we're experiencing and yet teaches us to grasp forward for what will be ours in him. The second week, we considered peace. Peace has been given to those who are in Christ. Jesus being born means that we have an expectation of wholeness. The word in the Bible for peace is the idea of things that have come together in one perfect whole, integrity, a puzzle that is put together with no missing pieces. This means that at Christmas time, though we see scatteredness everywhere, and you probably feel scattered, you probably don't know where the tape is, not sure if you have all the cards, all the presents, if you put the names on it, and then far worse than that, we live in fallen bodies, we have relationships that have been scattered, we understand a lack of integrity in us, but Jesus came, and there is a promise that in the future, he will put all things back together that you can be and will be in Christ whole. Last week, the third candle considers joy. We tried to get at joy. What is this thing given to us in Jesus? And that is a future expectation of gladness, that there is a disposition to the world. It's not neutral. The world is not a neutral personality to be filled out by whatever our whim may be in the moment. We're reminded that the coming age is one of joy. When Job is sitting in suffering and he's tempted to believe that this maybe is what the world is, maybe the disposition of the world is sadness. God comes to him in a whirlwind and his first rebuke is, were you there? Were you there when I established the world in joy? When the sons of God rejoiced? God has established the world in joy, and that's where he's bringing us. And so we were reminded last week that Christmas time is a down payment to say that there is a coming gladness to those who are in Jesus, and that we should rehearse this gladness here and now. This morning, we focus on love. We just heard from 1 John chapter 4. Love may seem to you like one of those themes that doesn't need to be discussed, Because you may think, well, I got this. Love is obvious. Love is easy. And I'm going to make the case this morning that it is neither of those things. It's not obvious. It's not easy. In fact, I don't think for as much as we talk about love that we really have it figured out. 
So this morning, my desire is to show that in the coming of Jesus, we have an expectation, an expectation to be ushered into God's presence in love, to not have a sense of fear or dread or condemnation, but that that desire from all of us, from when we are first aware of self, to belong, to be somewhere, to be known, to be received, to be seen, that Jesus comes as a down payment to assure us that one day we'll be ushered into God's presence and we will be received. That God is a receiving God, one who desires to give of himself. God is love. That's what 1 John says. Now here's the trick. Much of life, much of our experience presses against this. We often experience places where we're not sure we belong, We are often interacting with people who we are uncertain whether or not they have a receiving, sacrificing, giving mindset. And so much of this world is teaching us or attempting to teach us to doubt that we are loved, to doubt that God is love, to not see what is to be seen in Christ. And so I'm going to try over the next number of minutes to walk through 1 John chapter 4 and show all that Scripture gives us concerning love. Not all, but much of what's here in these passages. And I know that we need the Spirit of God to convince us. So I'm going to take a moment and pray. Let's pray together for these things. Let's pray that in Jesus we see the love of God demonstrated. Let's pray that in Jesus, this Advent season, that we come to know internally a sense of belonging, of being loved. And then let's pray together that God helps us to love one another and so prove and further our assurance. So let's pray. Father, would you make this word this idea of love be real to us this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear. I pray that our hearts would not be hardened, but opened. I pray that the wounds of the past, the ways that we have learned to cover over scars with hardness or cynicism, that we would be softened to truly believe, to come to know that we are received by you. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself, that you would reveal yourself more sharply, more poignantly than we have known you before. And I ask this not because we deserve it, but because you are love. At the very center of your being, you desire to give of yourself freely here this morning. So I ask, Holy Spirit, pour love into our hearts today. I pray that we would think well and feel well and love one another well as we consider your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with a group of friends and one of your buddies, as you were hanging out and walking around, constantly brought up food, just, oh man, that would be amazing. That would be unbelievable. Oh man, I just love food. I really need food. The food is amazing. 
what you would come to conclude probably about this friend, and perhaps because you cared about them, eventually what you'd say to them is, do you need to stop? Do you want something to eat? In other words, their obsession with the topic proved a starvation, probably not being over-the-top obsessed. Now, there are some people who perhaps are oversated, and that is why their obsession with food happens. But for the most part, the more we talk about a subject and bring it up consistently, it's a sign that we love it. It's why you should never go grocery shopping hungry, right? You know this advice? You know this wisdom? Heard a comedian say one time, he said, that'd be terrible, because what if you came home with the kind of food you want to eat when you're hungry? <laughs> that's, why, that's a terrible thought. I bring this up to point out one simple fact. The world is obsessed with love. There are love songs being penned right now. Right now, there are hearts being poured out into pages and through music. There are more songs about love than any other topic in the history of the world. There are more poems about love than any other thing written in the world. There are more movies, TV shows about love perfected or love unrequited or love lost. You would think, if you observed our culture or our society, you would think on the outset, as much as we talk about it, that we would have had this nailed, that we are experts in love, and that's why we have so much to offer. But what I want to submit to you is that I think it's more like a person who brings up food because of starvation. I don't think we've cracked the code yet. There is something deeply embedded in every single human being that knows that they want to belong, they want to be known, received, to have a place to be, and yet I think we all experience a wrestling with, a doubt often, about whether or not we are truly known or truly received or truly loved. And this is why Scripture gives us the promise of love in 1 John chapter 4. Jesus has come into the world so that a love-starved world, people who get it wrong, people who have to sing songs about it because we've messed it up, people who are looking for love in all of the wrong places. I don't know what other song there comes to mind for you, but just go there. Jesus came into the world to remind us, first and foremost, that love is something to be desired, is something to be looked for, is something to be longed for, and it can be found in Him. So what I want to look at together from 1 John chapter 4 is the idea that love has been revealed in the coming of Jesus. He's born into the world and that love is revealed. It tells us something about who God is. And then we're going to consider how it is that this love is demonstrated. How can we know for sure that one, God is love, that second, that we are loved, and that we have an expectation for love into the future. So 1 John is pretty clear. In fact, this is one of the most clear passages in all of Scripture. If you want to study the topic of love, you go to John. That's the reality. William Tyndale once said of commenting on 1 John, here John singeth his old song again. Because if you know anything about John as a disciple, as an apostle, he is known as the one whom Jesus loved. He is the beloved apostle. I'm not sure if it's a self-titled reality or not, but whether or not John said that of himself, 
like some sort of sibling rivalry. I'm the one that, lo- that is loved more. Whether he said it of himself or someone else said it, the point seems to be remaining that no one objected, that John was an expert in love. And so when you read John's gospel, you find love sprinkled all the way through it. And certainly when you read first and second and third John, love is the tale such that when he brings it up, someone like Tyndale would say, here he singeth his old song again. And what he tells us clearly in verse 8 is something that is to be revered, something to be received with awe. And that is, is that God himself, his nature, the very being of God is being revealed in Jesus coming into the world. He tells us plainly, God is love. What is God like? Well, God is love. What this means is this. The sending of the Son into the world is not an exception to the rule. God has not been neutral for all eternity past, and then in a moment of beneficence, says to himself, I don't know, what if I did something nice for them once in a while? The coming of the Son of God, this is the point that John is making, the coming of the Son of God is about reality being revealed, not reality being bent and interrupted. God from all eternity past has been love. He has been loving within his own person. There has been a constant cycle of self-giving, a constant cycle of others' focus. It's one of the mysteries of the Trinity is that all that God is, is in love. This means that from beginning to end, from the very first moments of eternity, from the first thoughts of bringing creation into being, from the thoughts that he had toward you in your creation, this moment right now and all the way into the future, all that God does is loving. There is no thing that God does that does not have a tinge of love. That is what John is saying. His anger and his wrath toward unrighteousness is a love for righteousness. His rejection of things that have fallen short of the glory of God is a love for his glory. God is love. He never ceases to be so. And in the revealing of his love to you, God is simply being what he is. John tells us God is love. He says this in verse 16 as well. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. But perhaps here's the question for the morning. How do you know? The guy with the microphone told you God is love. We sang some songs about God is love. I read in the Bible, God is love. But how do I know? And not just know, but like no, no. How can you know that God is love? How can we make love as a theme of Advent, not merely a statement about God, but a statement about our confidence, our experience, something that we live in and know to be true. How do we know? In fact, I think that 1 John 4, 7-21 is not merely about God is love, an explanation of who he is, but it's about what it means to know that he is love. There is a major difference between knowing a fact or stating a fact 
and knowing it from your gut. I think that what John writes his intention is to allow those who would receive Jesus to not merely as a statement of fact say God is love, but to live knowing that God is love. And here's where I get this from. I want you to note all of the wording of confidence in 1 John chapter 4, 7 to 21. Here's some of the wording of confidence. He says in verse 7 and 8, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There is a knowledge there. You can know God and his love. He says in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. The idea here is is what do you know and how do you know it for sure? Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. He's given us his spirit. How can you know? Verse 14, what we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Things you have seen and the things that you proclaim. Verse 15, we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. What is it that you confess? The things that you say to be true. Verse 16, he says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It is one thing to say God is love, another thing to come to know that God is love and to believe that he is love. The point here seems to be, John wants you to not only as a statement confess something about God, but to receive something from God in your being, at the depth of your being, what you know that you know that you know. He goes one step further in verse 17. God is love, he said at the verse, end of verse 16, and then verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Confidence. To be loved and to know one is loved is to be safe, to be confident, to be snuggled in. One of the most common themes of love songs is the idea of insecurity. People who are love enamored. Middle schoolers are constantly worried about, do you like me? But do you like them better? Do you still like me? Did you like me more? Did you like me less? Check the box. If you love me, then... Because love has a way of wanting to land with confidence. And we have a desire for confidence to be loved but we often lack it. We have been taught to be not confident, to be insecure concerning love. I'm going to make a big statement. It sounds a little psychotherapy or or something, but I think the Bible backs me up in some ways. I think that many of the maladies of the world, much of our acting out, much of our coping, our addictions, our hatred toward one another is really a kind of an attempt to deal with our insecurity about not knowing if we're loved. It so turns us around and inside out and upside down that to not know that you are loved leaves you grasping and lashing out at nearly everything around you. To live without love for a human being, because God is love and we're made in his image, to live without love is is to attempt to live without oxygen. You have, whether you know it or not, a deep need to be loved. Sometimes people wear it desperately on their sleeve 
as a sign of insecurity. Sometimes people have hardened it over with a scab over the scars. But the reality is, is that you have been designed to be loved by God and to know that love. To have this confidence. That's why John writes it. And he keeps using words like this because he wants to make the point that you can know. You can know the love of God. So how do we know the love of God? How do we know that it's on display? How can we reassure ourselves? And there's a number of ways that he gives us. Here's the first demonstration of the love of God. How can you know that God is love and that you are loved? First, he tells us that God sent his son into the world to die for sinners. And there's actually three points here. It's not just one statement. God sent his son. This is the first statement concerning love. We know that the love of God was made manifest among us, he says in verse 9. God sent his only son into the world. Now, I'm going to think about this just for a minute. Love is, at its core, self-sacrifice. To love someone or something is to give of yourself for it. It's to seek the good of another at the cost of oneself. Self-giving is at the core of love. At its minimal level, you can give someone your thoughts. You can give someone your affection, your attention. You can give someone your words. You can make common with them the experience that you have for them internally. You can give someone a gift. You can give someone your time. But ultimately, to love is to move toward them in giving. And Scripture says that God has moved. This is what love looks like. Love is demonstrated. That's why John 3, 16 and 17 say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This means not only in measure. You know the idea of like, how much do you love me? So much. So is a word that means big measure. But it also means in this way. God demonstrates his love for the world that he gave his only son. So the first demonstration of God's love. How is God's love put on display in the world while he sends his son? The unthinkable reality that the God of the universe comes into the world born of a woman. Galatians 4, as Daniel read earlier, born of woman, born into a world with maladies and sickness and runny noses. God sent his son into the world. That is one demonstration of love, but it goes further than that. God gave his son into the world to die. He says this in verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It would be one thing to come, another thing to die for the good of those who are sinners. God's love is demonstrated not only in the coming of Jesus into this rotten world, this crazy world, but then also to give his life for the world. The fact that Jesus comes and doesn't just wreck everything. He doesn't come as a clandestine sort of a, what's that called, a sleeper agent? You know when someone sends like a baby or something, like the Russians 
send a little baby over and the baby grows up and then they like press a button and his brain turns on to destroy everything. You don't know that age old story? (laughs) That's what they're called, sleeper agents. If I just told you God has come, you might not know that it's good news. Because God has every right to come in wrath. God has every right to come in destruction. God has every right to come with disdain. Christmas could have been a cosmic, don't make me come back there. Christmas could have been a turning around to the back seat. But Jesus did not come as a sleeper agent. He does not come with with wrath. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's good news. It's worth a period right there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And everyone should say, oh, good. Okay, good. But instead, to save the world through him. The love of God is demonstrated not only in the sending of his son, which is amazing enough, but to die, to absorb the wrath of God, And then it's further demonstrated in this, that he came not only into the world, amazing, not to condemn the world, but for sinners. Sometimes we think that love is owed something because of the value of its worth, and it's one of the ways we can get this mixed up. You're often insecure about whether or not God loves you because you're measuring it by whether or not you are lovable. You think to yourself, if I was a little bit more handsome, if I was a little more strong, if I was a little more honest, if I was a little bit better performing, then I could imagine God loving me because love is supposed to flow to things that deserve it. But the reality of God's love at his essence is this. The test, the bigness, the depth of God's love is shown in this, that he loves those who are undeserving. It is a testimony of his self-sacrifice. One may die for a good man. They may scarcely die. But God demonstrates his love to us and that he died for us while we were yet sinners. The great lie of the world is that you can only be loved if you deserve to be loved. But God is wrecking this lie. He's barging through it like the Kool-Aid man and saying essentially, this concept is terrible, performative, deserving kind of love where his love is sacrificial, self-giving. It cuts straight through all that you don't deserve and loves you. This is the demonstration of Jesus coming into the world. At Christmas time, we don't pretend that we only have part of the story, right? We don't just say, and then Jesus was born. I guess you'll have to come back in January to figure out if he grew up. Jesus lived a perfect life that you should have lived and you couldn't. Jesus died a sacrificial life that you deserve to die but won't have to die And Jesus rose to newness of life and offers to you his righteousness so that you will experience belonging and being loved in spite of yourself forever. And my guess is that you have tasted this in some measure. 
whether you know it or not. Parental love is used in the Bible. God describes himself as a father. This is for good reason. Because parents instinctually know what it is to give of oneself merely for the love of the child. Anyone who has cared for a baby knows how unbelievably self-centered they are. Knows how unbelievably demanding they are. And more than that, not only self-centered and demanding, but completely unaware of what is being given on their behalf. At 3 a.m. in the morning, I remember saying to my children, sort of in an aggravated tone when they were yelling at me and screaming because I took seven seconds to get the bottle instead of five. And then in the midst of that, getting all manner of disgustingness on me, cleaning them up, so that they could be tucked in perfectly, pampered, and powdered into bed. I remember saying in an aggravated tone, and you won't even be grateful. You won't even remember this. You don't even know. You have no idea what you deserve. I went to work this morning. You know, like that's the feeling. And yet as parents, you joyfully do this because you have a love that extends beyond for the sake of the child itself. This kind of sacrificing love is a wonderful example of the way that God loves those who do not deserve it. How is God's love demonstrated? How will you know? Reflect on this. This is how you know. We go through all of the operation to reflect on these things. Why do we sing the songs and why do we pray the prayers and why do we put the greenery up and get the candles that are hidden low? Why do we, why do, we do all this? To help one another reflect on the reality that God is love and he demonstrated his love in this, that Christ was sent into the world to die for sinners. Reflect on these things. It demonstrates the love of God. John goes on further. He says there are two more evidences that we can have of the love of God. First, which we just said, evidence of the love of God. How do we know that we know that we know? How can we have confidence? Well, we look to Jesus and what he is and has done for those who don't deserve it. Second, we receive the Spirit We have been given the Spirit, he says in verse 13. By this we know. How do we know that we belong? How do we know that God is love? Because he has given us his Spirit. Romans 5, which we're going to read later, tells us that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through his Spirit. To receive Jesus is to be given the Spirit of Jesus, a Spirit that reminds and tells us that we are known, accepted, received, that we belong, that we are loved. We have peace, not fear, as an experience because of the Spirit that dwells in us. God gives us confidence of his love to us by pouring out the Spirit to those who receive Jesus. So as you look on and remember the coming of the Son of God, and you see that he has died for your sins, and you realize that you do not deserve this, then when you confess him, 
What the Bible is saying is that God himself comes to dwell in you and gives you an experience of knowing that you belong and that you're received. So the way that you can know that you can know that you can know is to ask God for his spirit. And these are not just words for someone else. You don't have to work up to a level of spirituality. You don't have to attend a church so many times. You don't have to prove a kind of righteousness. You don't have to pray good. You can, from the depth of your being, here, now, later today, at any moment, say, God, show me your love by your spirit. Send your spirit into my soul. I do not feel that I belong. I do not feel worthy. I want to experience what I've been designed to experience. My invitation to you at Christmas time is to ask God for his spirit. The Bible tells us plain it's how we know. You can have confidence that you're loved. In your loneliness, God can send his spirit. In your unworthiness, God can send his spirit. In your insecurity, God can send his spirit. There's a final way that John says we ought to know. How can we know that God is love? And that is the way that we love one another. He says, this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Verse 13 started, or verse 7 started out the whole thing the same way. Let us love one another. The love we have for one another is to be a demonstration into the world, a reminder that God loves us. In this way, you are demonstrating and putting on display the love of God as you care for one another. I'll use a family example one more time. I did not know it, but my parents were a conduit of God's love to me by giving of themselves to keep me alive. I'm going to make the leap. I believe that what John is saying is this. Your love for one another, your receiving of one another, especially when you don't deserve it, the way that you love one another, not just because someone has the best jokes. The way that you love one another, not simply because they have the right membership. The way you receive one another, not because they have always done you right by, but especially when they've done you wrong by, you are a conduit of God's love to one another. There ought to be, this is what John's saying, there ought to be such a demonstrable love and receiving of one another that our experience here should grow our hearts in confidence. Then we walk out there, we say, man, I don't know, I was insecure before, but the way that I was loved reminds me, I, I think God is love. I have more confidence today that God is love because of the way I was received by his people. To be restored to love is the great work of Jesus. This is because there is no greater righteousness than loving well. No greater good, no greater holiness than loving well. There is a picture. If it applies to you, that's going to be your responsibility. I'm not blaming you. I'm not accusing you. But there is a picture of religiosity that says that righteousness and holiness must be firm 
sour, cold, calculating. The reality is, is that the law of God itself, His commandments, press us toward love. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus gives His disciples the great commandment. It says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, All righteousness, all law-keeping depend on loving God well and loving your neighbor well. There is no such thing as a righteousness that fails the love test. To receive one another is to be righteous. To take what you have, your time, your affection, your words... And to give them to another, even when they don't deserve it, is to be righteous. That is to be holy. To be restored to love is what Jesus came to do. And through him, we see that God is love. And because he has loved, we love him. And because Jesus has come... And we have been received by him, though we don't deserve it. We can love one another, though we do not deserve it. Many times when we are sinned against or there is difficulty, we see these things as a barrier to love. I would love you, it's just so hard. There's a country song called Hard to Love, I think, and it just, it comes into my head at this point, but. I believe that what Scripture is saying, what John is saying, if we demonstrate love the way that Jesus demonstrated it, is that the moments of the most difficulty are actually the greatest opportunities for love, not the biggest downfall for love. Love is going to be put on display the more that we are long-suffering with one another. Love is going to be put on display more powerfully the more that we understand one another's weaknesses. Love is going to be put on display the more that this room is different and odd and strange and weird. Love is going to be put on display when you belt out a song next to someone who cannot sing. Love is going to be demonstrated when someone expresses an opinion you think is absolutely absurd. You've never imagined something more stupid. And you love them. You receive one another in the midst of wrongs and weaknesses because God has received you. And as we experience this together, we come to know with confidence that God is love. What John desires here is not a theological treatise, though he gives a wonderful one. What he desires here is not a statement, a mere statement of doctrine, but a lived receiving of the love of God in the person of Jesus. A 
my desire if I want to be truthful and follow in what John desires would be that you do confess the right things, that you press it back against the lies of the world and you understand that God is love, that at the end we will be restored to love. But I also pray that in reflecting on the coming of Jesus, in seeing him dying for undeserving sinners, in receiving the love of one another, that you come to know that you would grow in confidence this Christmas, that you would have less striving, less longing, less running, less coping, that you could rest knowing that you are loved. Before I pray for us, I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 1 to 8. We have taken the last four weeks and looked at these great themes, hope and peace and joy and love. In Romans chapter 5, in these first eight verses, Paul hits on each of them as a great gift of the gospel. And I want to read this as a sort of prayer that we would experience these things together so that we don't waste our Christmas time. So this is the first verse of Romans chapter 5. I read this as a, an aspiration, as a desire for your soul. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray.